On the evening of August 10th, 2004, Yolanda Bindix, a 25-year-old mother of four, worked a closing shift at the Family Dollar in Jamestown, New York. After closing the store, Yolanda spoke to her brother on the phone and said she'd stop by his place within an hour. But she never showed up, and no one ever saw Yolanda alive again. Just over two years later, Yolanda's skeletal remains were found in a wooded area around 16 miles from Jamestown. It was determined that she had been murdered. It's been 19 years since Yolanda's disappearance, and investigators are still searching for her killer. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a former police detective and licensed private investigator, and each week I'll be covering an unsolved case and story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any leads, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. As I said before, guys, this is the type of case that I'm going to cover each and every week. So if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing to the channel, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Uh, this case is an interesting one because this is kind of the direction that I see the show going. Uh, the way this case was brought to my attention was Yolanda Bendix's daughter, Allie, actually reached out to me weeks ago in uh, uh, Instagram DMs. And this was before I had even announced the show. She was just reaching out for Crime Weekly, my, my other podcast with Stephanie Harlow. And uh, it just, the case struck me. She had a lot of information in the DM. And um, I have a team working with me on, this, on these cases, uh, Haley and Anna. And so I said, this might be a good one. I sent it to Haley and she's like, yep, I know the case. Is, this is a great one. And um, I will say this is this is something I think we're going to do a lot of in the future. This is there's a lot of family members out there that are that have a loved one that they lost that have been affected by tragedy and their case is still unsolved. And uh, I see a world where this is going to be what we're trying to do, maybe not every single week, but pretty but pretty often. And before you start uh, DMing me on Instagram, if you have a case, just hold off for now. There's going to be an email that we're going to create for it that it'll go directly to all of us so we can see it. We can kind of file them so we can figure out the order of how we're going to pursue it. And then if we're if we're able to look at the case, uh, someone will reach out to you. I, I actually spoke to uh, Allie today before recording this. We conducted an interview with her a couple, maybe a few days ago. And I just wanted to reach out to her and you know thank her for letting us cover the case and we had some personal conversations off record that will remain between us, but it's always good to talk to the, the person directly and and see what they're going through because I, I unfortunately have never experienced that type of tragedy. And uh, although I've worked a lot of these cases, I've never been personally affected by by losing someone that I care about that deeply, even though at the time Ali was only two years old. But these are the types of cases that I but I, that I'm really passionate about because I know with a lot of true crime podcast they're doing. And as Ali said in one of her interviews, like they're, they're doing a lot of cases that are already solved or newer cases. And, and the cases that are a little older, 
kind of get lost by the wayside. And, and we don't want to do that. As a, as a community, we want to make sure that we keep bringing light to these cases because it's never too late. And uh, you never know who's going to be watching, who's going to be listening that may have some information and something said in there may trigger something or may cause them to come forward. So that's why we're doing this. And again, I just want to personally thank uh, Yolanda's family and more specifically, Ali, for helping us out with this episode. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive into the case. Born on September 29, 1978, in Buffalo, New York, Yolanda Ann Bindix was the last of 11 children born to Emery and Patricia. When Yolanda was 10 years old, the Bindix moved to Jamestown, a city with a population of around 30,000 people located in the far west corner of New York near the Pennsylvania border. While growing up in Jamestown, Yolanda was known to be a, quote, helpful and compassionate daughter and a fun-loving aunt and friend. She loved singing, watching movies, and spending time with her loved ones. In 1995, Yolanda graduated from Jamestown High School. Around a year later, she had her first of four daughters. As I said earlier, our team actually had the pleasure of speaking with Yolanda's third-born daughter, Allie, who was two at the time when her mom went missing. Here she is talking a little bit more about her mom. Unfortunately, I don't have any, like, physical memories of her. I was so young when she went missing. I think that's, like, one of the hardest things about, you know her being gone and like missing and you know it's hard enough that she's gone but like I just missed out on a whole lifetime with her but I mean she was raising four girls by herself so I know she was definitely an attentive mother hardworking. you know it's hard being a single mom but she did it every day up until she was gone and I admire that about her. Yolanda was dedicated to making sure her four daughters had a safe secure and promising future. Despite having four children to raise on her own she always held down a job, working at various businesses throughout the Jamestown area. By the summer of 2004, Yolanda was a sales associate at the Family Dollar, which at the time was located at 194 Flavana Avenue. On August 10, 2004, Yolanda worked the closing shift at the Family Dollar, while her brother Frank watched her daughters, who were now between the ages of 18 months and 18 years old. At 8.10 p.m., Yolanda and another co-worker locked up the store and headed towards their cars. At 8.20 p.m., Yolanda called Frank to check in and ask what groceries she and the kids needed at home. She told her brother that she was going to the store to buy the food and she'd be home in less than an hour. Around 15 minutes later, Frank called again, but Yolanda didn't answer. Yolanda never showed up at Frank's house to pick up her daughter, something completely out of character for her. Frank and other family members continued trying to call Yolanda all night, but she never picked up. In the morning, Frank reported Yolanda missing and her family went out looking for her. One of Yolanda's sisters found her car in the parking lot of an Arby's restaurant on Flavana Avenue, less than half a mile from the family dollar. The car was still locked, which was odd because Yolanda always kept her car unlocked. It's also important to note that her person phone were not inside the vehicle. There was no sign of Yolanda anywhere, so the family continued searching. By August 13th, Jamestown police had brought in the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to help them search for Yolanda. They looked into her bank and phone records, and they found that neither had been used since the night of the 10th. Meanwhile, Yolanda's family put up posters and asked volunteers to help them do a massive search, focusing on the areas where Yolanda was last seen and where her car had been found. On August 19th, nine days after Yolanda went missing, there was a big development in the case. A police officer who was in a relationship with Yolanda when she disappeared had been placed on administrative leave and was being questioned by the FBI. That officer's name was Michael Watson. Yolanda's sister Margaret explained to the Buffalo News that Yolanda had been interested in Watson for around a decade, but they didn't start a sexual relationship until around 2001 or 2002. 
Yolanda's daughter, Allie, did tell us that Yolanda and Watson were never officially together. Watson would stop by her house in his police car, pull Yolanda over to talk to her, or call her in the middle of the night while he was on duty. But that was the extent of their relationship because Michael was actually married. Channel 2 News reported that Watson hadn't told the police department he was involved with Yolanda until four days into the investigation. The Jamestown Police Department didn't put him on leave until the next day. The department explained that Watson was put on paid leave to prevent any potential conflicts of interest during the investigation into Yolanda's disappearance. They assured the public that Watson's participation in the case prior to his removal did not create any issues. On the following day, August 20th, law enforcement searched for Yolanda, focusing on the area near where her car was found. Police made castings of footprints and tire tracks and used search dogs to look in the wooded areas nearby. At this point, it's unclear if they were able to obtain anything of importance from the search because they never announced anything publicly. Days later, another search was conducted. This time, police scoured three square miles of Jamestown, looking in gravel pits, marshes, ponds, and railroad tracks. Again, Yolanda was not found. On August 27th, it was announced that there was a new person of interest in Yolanda's disappearance, the father of her youngest child, Clarence Carl Cart, who was on parole for a robbery in Florida. Despite being on parole in a state across the country, Clarence had been in New York at the time of Yolanda's disappearance. Because of this, he was arrested and charged with being a fugitive from justice, and his car was seized for forensic testing. Clarence and Yolanda had an on-and-off relationship. It was casual, and the pair never married. Allie told us that Yolanda and Clarence were not together in August of 2004, but Clarence remained somewhat present because obviously they had a child together. However, Clarence did not play a significant role in his daughter's life, Allie said, quote, he didn't step up to the plate. Three days after saying Clarence was a person of interest, police announced that he was, quote, not the top person of interest in Yolanda's disappearance, which is a little confusing. Three days after announcing him, now you're saying, hey, he's not a top priority. Why, why even make that a point? Just let it be what it is and let him think what he wants. But anyways, I digress. He was later extradited back to Florida. And in a subsequent interview with WGRZ, Clarence said he didn't have a clue what happened to Yolanda. He held the belief that his past criminal record made him an easy target for law enforcement. In the early days of September, there were more searches for Yolanda. However, there was no movement in the investigation. Then, finally on September 8th, police got a major break in the case. A passerby found Yolanda's purse near a sewer on 8th and Monroe in Jamestown. This sewer is not far from the family dollar where Yolanda worked. Police conducted further searches in the area, hoping to uncover more evidence. They ended up finding a keychain belonging to Yolanda along with her wallet and a photo. It appeared that Yolanda's belongings had been washed out of the sewers by a heavy rainstorm. The items that were recovered were sent to a forensic lab for testing. For days, police continued to search the area for more evidence. A week after finding her purse, keychain, wallet, and a photo, Yolanda's keys were found in a storm sewer. Police now believe that Yolanda had been abducted. On September 29th, which would have been her 26th birthday, a candlelight vigil was held for Yolanda. WGRZ reported that three of her four children were present at the vigil. Now at the time, Allie was only two years old, but she was there and she blew out a candle that was meant for her mother and released a balloon into the sky. On October 1st, the Jamestown police chief told the Associated Press that leads were starting to dry up. They had interviewed hundreds of people, but they still didn't have any suspects. With that being said, no one had been ruled out yet. In the hopes of bringing in new tips, the FBI offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to Yolanda. An additional $1,000 was later added by Crime Stoppers. Three days later, on October 4th, 
Officer Michael Watson was arrested on several charges of stalking and sexual harassment. The charges were not related to Yolanda's disappearance. However, police said that Watson was still considered a person of interest in her case. WGRZ reported that the indictment alleged Watson used his position on the police force to obtain the phone numbers, work schedules, and other personal information of female employees. He then sent disturbing emails to multiple women, conducted unauthorized traffic stops with female city employees, and then made unwanted advances towards them. Watson had pursued at least three different women in his police car parked outside their residences, repeatedly called them, and made inappropriate statements like, quote, I want you and, quote, I can't stay away from you. The case against Watson also accused him of engaging in indecent exposure on Jamestown city premises, including City Hall. Additionally, he had sexual encounters with female city employees in various locations while on duty, including city property. Needless to say, Watson was doing a bunch of stuff he wasn't supposed to be doing. He was eventually released on $10,000 bail and was later suspended from the police department without pay. Side note here, these, these are the types of people that really boil my blood because obviously I don't believe all police officers are like this, but you know, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And that's what you have here, that you have someone in a high position of power um, using those powers to harass these women. And it really puts them in a tough spot because the people that they're supposed to be able to call when something like this happens, the police, those are the offenders. So it really puts uh, these women in a tough spot and uh, again, I just whenever I hear these cases where cops abuse their powers like this, there's just no excuse for it. And I, I really think we got to do a better job of vetting these people during the background checks. It's not a completely foolproof plan. Sometimes people slip through the cracks like in any profession. But we really with the amount of power that we have as police officers, we got to be the best of the best every time. As much as we can do it, we got to make sure we vet out the bad ones. Despite the charges against Watson, police were still no closer to solving Yolanda's case. In November, there was a new possible lead. Police had found out that right before Yolanda disappeared, she had gone on a weekend getaway to Niagara Falls with Darian Thomas, the father of her second-born daughter. Allie told us that Yolanda and Darian were not officially together, but they were trying to rekindle their relationship. This trip was of interest because the night that Yolanda disappeared, she had told her sister Margaret that she was planning on sharing a secret after she got off work. According to the Buffalo News, Margaret thought that when Yolanda mentioned she had something to share, her tone resembled the one she used when sharing news of her previous pregnancies. This led Margaret to believe that maybe Yolanda was pregnant at the time of her disappearance. Another possibility that crossed Margaret's mind was that Yolanda might have gotten engaged to Darian during their trip. Following this development, Darian was interviewed by WGRZ. He said Yolanda never mentioned a secret to him during their trip. When asked if he and Yolanda were going to get married, Darian said he proposed, but she said no. Instead of marrying, they were, quote, looking at settling down, perhaps finding a home together. Darian also told WGRZ that he had no idea what happened to Yolanda. He teared up as he said, quote, I miss her more than anything. Darian has not been named as a person of interest in Yolanda's case as of this recording and no one knows what secret Yolanda was going to share with her sister. Searches for Yolanda continued throughout the rest of November and December, but there was no sign of her anywhere. In January of 2005, police gave an update to the public stating that they had no major leads, but were still investigating all tips that came in. A month later in February, Buffalo News reported that Officer Michael Watson was facing 23 department misconduct charges involving seven women, including Yolanda. Many of these charges stemmed from the stalking and harassment he had been charged with previously. 
the Jamestown Police Department further accused Watson of, quote, absenting himself from jailer duties on the evening of Yolanda's disappearance. Reading between the lines, the department was accusing Watson of not being at the jail when Yolanda went missing, meaning he didn't have an alibi. The department also accused Watson of withholding allegedly, quote, valuable information relating to the investigation of the disappearance of Yolanda Bindix between August 10th and August 14th. Prior to the misconduct charges, Yolanda's family had hoped that she would be found alive. But after reading over everything the department was accusing Watson of, they weren't as hopeful. Margaret told the Buffalo News, quote, I'm sickened by what I read about him and his behavior knowing that Yolanda was involved with him. For the next few months, searches for Yolanda continued without any new findings. The one-year anniversary of Yolanda's disappearance arrived, and she had still not been located. A few months later, in October of 2005, Officer Watson sued the Jamestown Police Department, claiming that the department intentionally tarnished his reputation by suggesting that he was involved in Yolanda's disappearance, despite having evidence indicating his innocence. To illustrate this, the lawsuit stated that Watson was working as a jailer the night that Yolanda went missing. Furthermore, the lawsuit said that Watson cooperated with investigators, as he willingly subjected himself to seven hours of questioning without legal counsel, passed a polygraph test, and provided a DNA sample, and even permitted authorities to search his home and car. The city of Jamestown countersued, claiming that they couldn't prove Watson was working at the jail when Yolanda disappeared. They further stated that they were informed by the FBI that their agency couldn't clear Watson's name from the case. The lawsuits were eventually dismissed, but the criminal and misconduct charges against Watson stayed intact. For the next year or so, there were few developments in Yolanda's case. That all changed on September 10, 2006, when hunters found skeletal remains in a wooded area in Charlotte, New York, a small town located 16 miles from Jamestown. According to the Democrat and Chronicle, police determined that the remains belonged to a white woman in her 20s who was between the heights of 5'2 and 5'7. It was believed that the remains belonged to one of two women, Yolanda Bendix or Lori Beauvais, who went missing in June of 1997. Now, I'm not going to get into Lori's case here, but if you want to know more, make sure you check out the Moms and Mysteries podcast, who will be covering Lori's case this week. Ultimately, the remains were identified as belonging to Yolanda. Her death was ruled as a homicide, although the details surrounding her cause of death have not been released. However, we do know that there was no evidence that Yolanda was pregnant at the time. This only added to the mystery of what secret she planned on sharing the night she disappeared. On September 20th, the police announced that they had narrowed the scope of their investigation to a, quote, particular area and particular person. They went on to state, quote, the person that we're interested in knows we're interested in them. The identity of this person has not been released to the public or to Yolanda's family. Six months later, in March of 2007, authorities awarded the hunters who had located Yolanda's remains with an award of $5,000 for their involvement in the investigation. The police hoped that by publicly presenting them with an award, other people who had information might come forward. Authorities said they believed that there were people in the community who had information that hadn't been reported to police yet. They asked the public for help and made sure people knew that there was still a $21,000 reward available. In August of 2007, the lead detective on Yolanda's case spoke to the Jamestown Post-Journal for the three-year anniversary. He revealed that the police believe they know who murdered Yolanda. The detective said, quote, the discovery of the body and the location of the body certainly played into our theory of who is responsible. It is a very isolated area we believe is very familiar to the individual we believe is responsible for her death. 
In June of 2008, Officer Michael Watson entered an Alford plea to a single misdemeanor charge of official misconduct, which meant that he maintained his innocence while acknowledging there was enough evidence to potentially convict him. All the charges of stalking and sexual harassment were dropped, and Watson was sentenced to three years probation. He was also banned from ever being a police officer again. Following his plea, Watson continued to claim that he played no role in Yolanda's disappearance and murder. After Watson was convicted, things slowed way down in Yolanda's case. Her family continued fighting for answers. They made t-shirts, spoke to the media, and sometimes held get-togethers for Yolanda's birthday. But over the years, less and less people showed up for the events. In 2022, an undercover cases team was brought in to work Yolanda's case. Advancements in forensic technology were used to examine evidence in ways that were not previously possible. Additionally, witnesses were interviewed again, leading to the discovery of fresh insights and information. In August, detectives told 7 News, quote, We feel we've made significant progress. We feel that the answers to this case are close at hand. A month later, in September, authorities announced that Clarence Cart had been caught on surveillance cameras walking out of the Quickfill gas station at 161 Flavana Avenue, the same time that Yolanda was walking to her car in the Family Dollar parking lot right before she disappeared. Now, it's important to note that the Quickfill and the Family Dollar store were located across the street from each other. We did ask Allie if she had any idea why Clarence, who was living in Florida at the time, would have been in Jamestown on the night Yolanda disappeared. She said she didn't know of any reason why he'd be there. According to WIVB, police are considering Clarence a person of interest. Detectives said they had already brought the DA's office in to help work on the case, which was a, quote, significant development. However, they are still looking for people who had seen or had conversations with either Yolanda or Clarence during the time frame of 7 p.m. on August 10th and 6 a.m. on August 11th. Now, as of this recording, they have no other updates in Yolanda's case, which is still open and unsolved. Before I give my perspective on this case, I'd like to share one last thing from Yolanda's daughter, Allie. One of everyone's like favorite thing to bring up when it comes to my mom is the fact that she was 25 years old and she had four kids with four different fathers and she was involved with a police officer who was married and yeah maybe she did make some bad choices when it came to men but ultimately what we need to focus on is that she did not deserve to die and that this is still unsolved it'll be 19 years in august and we still are basically at square one i wish people would stop focusing on that I also want to note that Yolanda's sister Margaret added that Yolanda's relationship should be the least of anyone's concern. Her murder should matter more than anything. Margaret, I agree with you. So first off, I want to talk about the fact that when Yolanda left work, she called her brother Frank almost immediately. And, and then 15 minutes later, he called her and she didn't pick up. So I think that's our window. That's her window when she was attacked. And I think that's very important because more than likely that indicates that whatever happened to her happened right in the Family Dollar parking lot. I think this also suggests one of two things. Yolanda's attacker was someone she didn't know and caught her by surprise, or if it was someone she knew, they immediately acted with aggression. There was no pretending that this was a, a friendly encounter. This was an attack almost immediately. And the reason I believe that is because if it were someone who at least initially was acting friendly and acting like they had no malicious intentions, 
when Frank called, more than likely she she would have picked up because, again, this is just a friendly encounter. And the fact that Frank was calling her so late, only 15 minutes later, she might think something's wrong with the kids. I would assume she would have picked up, but she didn't. And I think the reason she didn't pick up is because she was incapable of doing so. She was no longer in possession of her phone or at that point she may have already been incapacitated. Now, I want to talk about her car because there's a couple of scenarios that could have played out here based on how the car was eventually found. Uh, the first scenario is the attacker approaches her. He forces her into the vehicle. They drive off to the location, the wooded area where she was eventually found, and he kills her there. Or she he forces her into the car. He drives. They go out to the area. The attack probably happens inside the vehicle. And then her body is disposed in that wooded area. After he kills her or disposes of her body in the woods, he drives back to the area, parks the car there, maybe walks to his car. He's not going to go right to where she was or where he was because that might give his identity away. Another potential scenario is as he attacks her in the parking lot at the Family Dollar, they drive down the road. They stop the car in the Arby's parking lot. Maybe he gets into a, a different car with her. They leave the car there and they go off to the wooded area. He kills her in the car or in the wooded area and then he goes wherever he's going to go after that. Either scenario, based on how the car was recovered, it is highly likely that at that moment when that car was put there, it was put there by the offender. Whether Yolanda was there with him or whether she was already injured at that point, we may never know. But as her family said, she never locked the car and her items were not in the car which is suggestive that she never got into the car with them on under her own power. Yeah, they might have been in the car with her for a short period of time, but before that vehicle was locked, the offender grabbed her belongings. It's also important to note that more than likely, the suspect moved the vehicle to a different location to throw off police, right? Think about it for a second. If the attack ha happens in the parking lot and they never get in the vehicle and they just go into his vehicle, well, now police, with a high degree of certainty, can kind of assume through reasonable deduction that more than likely she was attacked between the time that she walked out of the store and was walking to her car, which narrows down the window of potential suspects because it, it had to be someone who was in that immediate area. But if, if the car is found down the, re the street, then it opens up all these other possibilities where what if she wasn't attacked at the family dollar? What if she got in her car and for some reason she met someone down at the Arby's or stopped there for a second to check something and the attacker was there? Again, it just creates a, a larger pool of potential suspects and creates a more complicated investigation. So if we want to reverse engineer that, the fact that the car was only down the road and it's highly likely that the offender put it there. Well, exactly what he didn't want us to think we should be thinking, which is potentially he was right in the immediate area of the family dollar when this went down. And again, he's just trying to throw off police. And I, I think police know that as well. Either way you slice it, the parking of the car at Arby's, in my professional opinion, was staged. It was staged to be there to look like she had parked it there. Unfortunately for this offender, he didn't know that it was out of character for Yolanda to lock the door, which was an indicator to her family and friends. I do also think that although it took years to find Yolanda, more than likely she was killed that night. Yes, she could have been abducted and kept somewhere for a while, but based on the suspects that we're gonna, that we know of that we're going to talk about, this this was something that probably all occurred in, within a matter of hours.
Now, I wanted to give a little bit of kudos to the Jamestown Police Department because early on they brought in the FBI. They also talked about bringing in the DA's office, and they also brought in this unsolved cases team, which yeah, it's been 19 years, and, and you will have some police departments that say, oh, that's still not long enough. The, the egos kick in, and they don't want anybody else looking at what they did and potentially the mistakes they made. But they did it here, and they did it for the right reasons. As I mentioned when we talked about the case, you know, forensic technology is constantly evolving. And something that you had 20 years ago may not have been substantial then, but now with the advancements in DNA and our ability to use MVAC and all these other technologies to grab smaller amounts of DNA than we could in the past, something that was insignificant then might be potentially impactful now. And so revisiting those pieces of evidence is extremely important. And then the second thing, re-interviewing all the witnesses. Yes, you interviewed them before. Yes, their their memories might have diminished since then because it's been about 20 years. But here's the other side to that coin. You have new investigators talking to them, using different techniques, asking different questions. Maybe they reveal different answers. Maybe over time, witnesses remembered more. And so re-interviewing them can be a very daunting process, but is absolutely necessary when we get to like the 10 and 20 year mark of these cases. If you haven't made an arrest by then, it's time to start from the beginning again. All right, I want to end this with the two main suspects that we discussed tonight. First off, Michael Watson. We talked about him a lot. The guy's obviously a scumbag, but I don't necessarily believe that he's the guy. And I'll tell you why. First off, as he said through his attorneys and he said publicly, at the time when this happened, he was interviewed for seven hours without counsel. He voluntarily submitted to a polygraph test. He gave his DNA He allowed them to search his car and his home. That is not normal for someone who is guilty. Now, you could argue that he's like, hey, I'm going to give him all this because that just makes me even look more innocent. And sure, that could be possible. But he knows the crime that was committed. And if he were involved, there's probably going to be something that links it to him if he allows them all of that. Could be cockiness. He could be just that good. But I, I don't think that's the case. And I also think... The fact that he sued the police department over this, he's just poking the bear. If he's the guy, he just wants them to forget about him. And yet he's poking the bear, challenging them uh, and willing to be deposed under oath in regards to this investigation. So I think that says a lot. Again, I don't like the guy. I think he abused his power. Um, He gives all of law enforcement a bad name. Do I think he murdered Yolanda? Probably not, because you also got to consider motive And he basically was married to his wife, having a side relationship with Yolanda, getting the best of both worlds. It doesn't appear that she was pregnant. It doesn't appear based on what we know that she was about to expose him to his wife. So what would be the reason behind doing this? What would get it to this point? And the fact that he was supposed to be working that night as a cop, you would like to think that if he was going to do something like this, he would pick a night where he didn't have to be somewhere that could be documented and and gone back to at a later date. So I really do think that although it looks bad, he's probably not the guy. Which brings me to Clarence Cart. Clarence Cart has some problems. As I said, when we were talking about the story, he wasn't even supposed to be in New York at the time. And what are the chances that at the time when Yolanda's getting out of work, he's right across the street in a city and a state that he shouldn't be in. And As we know, they do have a child together and he wasn't very involved with his daughter's life. And I do have to ask myself, 
is that because of Yolanda or is that just because he was a, a bad a bad father? I don't really know the answers. Maybe she didn't want him around because he was a bad father. But that doesn't matter. It matters how he perceives it. If he felt like his relationship with his daughter or lack thereof was in part due to Yolanda, um, he may have had an axe to grind. There may be more to this story, this relationship that we're unaware of that also could have contributed to a, to a motive as far as why he would want to murder her. And the fact that, I, as I explained earlier uh, regarding the car, it is suggested that whoever killed her was in that immediate area. And as we know, uh, Clarence was in fact in that area. It's documented in video. And I do think it's telling that law enforcement all these years later are putting his name out publicly after saying they believe they know who it is and that person knows that they know who it is. They haven't really mentioned anybody else, have they? But even though they haven't mentioned anybody else, I'm going to. We have to consider the fact that there could be another person. There could be someone who hasn't even been identified yet, at least publicly, maybe behind closed doors. This person that they're referring to is the person they've never mentioned. But again, that wouldn't then make sense why they would mention other persons of interest. Could they be trying to throw them off? Maybe. I doubt it. That's not a tactic we normally use. But I am going to say that there, there is that other person. That's, that's someone who we haven't identified yet. And maybe that's why this case hasn't been solved. It's, it's also possible that there was another person in that area who saw Yolanda walking to her car by herself, saw a window of opportunity where they could get the jump on her because she was unsuspecting. She might've been looking for her keys or whatever. And they attacked her, put her in the vehicle and did exactly what I had said for the, uh, earlier as far as potential scenarios. And again, if that's the case, that could explain why we don't have any answers yet because police may, may be narrowing in on, on the wrong people. Who knows? Again, you always have to preface this because we have some information but we don't have all of it. There are things going on behind closed doors within the agency that may not be released and rightfully so, right? It, it may be guilt knowledge and they want to keep that close to the chest just in case they do come upon someone. They can use that to, to verify whatever story uh, this individual tells. If they, if they give a confession or if they say something that only the killer would know during an, an interview or an interrogation, maybe they slip up, say something and now they got them. So I understand it. Um, but, but that's just what it is for us. And I want to make sure that you guys know I'm giving my opinions based on the information I have. And if, if I had more, those opinions could change. And that's going to wrap it up for me in regards to this case. Again, I want to thank Yolanda's family, especially Allie, for allowing me to cover this case. This is my passion. This is what I love to do. I love to reinvigorate those cases, give them another boost where people who may not have ever heard of Yolanda before now know her name. And maybe there's someone out there in the area who's familiar with one of these individuals who were mentioned tonight, who has been contemplating coming forward. And maybe this puts them over the edge. And with that in mind, anyone with information is asked to call the Unsolved Crimes Unit at 716-753-4578 or 716-753-4579. There's still a $21,000 reward available. So remember, if you have information that can help, you could get that money. And if you don't have any tips but would still like to support the Bindex family, you can share Yolanda's reward poster and join their Facebook group, which is called Justice for Yolanda Bindex. I want to thank you guys for being here tonight. 
As always, if you are, are interested in true crime and like these types of stories, I would appreciate it if you subscribe to the channel, uh, whether that's on YouTube, Apple Podcast, or, or Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. I would greatly appreciate it. Everyone stay safe out there. I'll see you soon.